0: Um, But we'll try to come out of here today knowing Mark chapter 10 better than when we walked in. And that's the goal. We'll do the first half. We're going to do through verse 27 this morning. Um, Again, Mark chapter 10 is where you can open your Bibles. Um, Mark is wrapping up the ministry of Jesus. So Mark's a short gospel. It's the immediate gospel. Everything happens immediately and next and and. He starts entire sections with the word and. And so it is... I think written a lot like you would hear Peter's speech. Mark was kind of a helper of Peter. And when you went out and heard Peter preach, this is the kind of thing you would hear. He would tell the story of Jesus, tell his own story, and then people would come and follow Christ. So the way he's putting this together is Mark is likely assembling the gospel of Mark in a way that it would be as if you heard Peter giving a sermon and giving his testimony. So we get to get an inside look at the first century, at how that was presented. It's presented like an oral piece. The, the dialogue and the discourse is like an oral piece. Um, and, and again, with Mark chapter 10, the word starts with then. Like, then this happened, and then this happened. So it's like listening to a very excited person tell you about the most important thing in their life. And that's what Mark's doing. Along the way, Jesus has, since chapter 4, been going through this cycle of showing people what they need to see about the kingdom of God. Matthew talks a lot more about the kingdom of God. Mark talks a lot more about how to live your life. So he'll get challenged, and then he'll respond to the challenge, and then he'll do a miracle that backs up, the, has the power and the authority to make that teaching. So people are amazed when Jesus teaches because he has authority when he teaches. And part of that authority is what he did that backed it up. So if he was wrong, God would not let him do miracles anymore, right? There would be a disassociation. But the miracles and the intervention of God validates the incarnation of God. This is God talking to you. And as we've gone from chapter 4 to chapter 10, the disciples have come to that realization, you're not just a person, are you? You're the Christ. You're the anointed one. You're the promised savior of humanity since Genesis 1. Like, you're here to save us from our own screw-ups, And that's exactly what's going on. So right before we kind of get to the Jerusalem segment of Mark, this is the last chapter before that for context, Jesus gives this last set of teachings. And he's taught people how to come into following Christ, but then he's telling them how to live on the other end, and he's responding to challenges. So along the way, he's doing these things. Verse 1 says, Then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. And multitudes gathered to him again. And he was, as he was accustomed, and he taught them again. It says, accustomed, again, again. Mark's using this language because I think, and as we've gone through these chapters, he really makes the point that Jesus' ministry was public. I think the enemy loves to convince non believers that Jesus was just some local dude that got popular after he died and rose again. Like, or they don't agree with the rose again part, but. They like to minimize his ministry. Mark doesn't do that at all. Almost every time the crowds gather, Mark's continuing to make the point that Jesus was used to crowds. Everyone in the region knew who he was. His fame spread around the region. So he emphasizes that. And the repetition of that emphasis of the publicness of his ministry has been there since chapter 4. There's times when he talks privately, and it's usually about his godhood or his messiahship. But when he's public, he's telling people how to live and how to do things. So the following teachings would be particular to Rome. Mark's being written from Rome. And Mark, is, um, as a gospel, is directed towards the Gentile Roman audience. A lot of cues come throughout there. Uh, we get three cues in Mark 10, which is marriage, kids, and money. A lot of the things, the Romans would look at the Jewish people and say, that's ridiculous, and we're not going to be like that. So the first part of Mike, Mark Mark shows these traditions that the Jewish people had that anyone would agree are kind of silly, right? As we get into this, these aren't things Romans think would silly. Romans had opinions about marriage, kids, and money. And they were strongly held cultural beliefs within that society. And they had bled into Jewish culture a little bit. So when Jesus is talking about these things, and the way Mark puts this at the end, he's prepped the Roman reader to really be on board with Mark a long ways down the road, and then this would hit him in the face. And it was meant to be that way. So as receivers of this, as Gentiles, living in a culture that's not necessarily Jesus-leaning, this will likely hit us where we live. And it was meant to do that. It was meant to be the hammer at the end of all these teachings. Verse 2, The Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife testing him? The word testing there is not the good kind of testing. Like, I just want to give you a test and see how you're doing. It's testing as though to put him down. So they're giving him one of these things. It's an aggressive effort to discredit him in verse 2. For the Romans, this idea of divorce, anytime, anywhere, it was a male-dominated society, and men could do whatever they wanted to to women. That's true of nearly every pagan culture. And when... In the Old Testament, when the law around divorce came to be, it, it was because the Jews had a very different opinion about marriage. It was a lifetime covenant. And this is where this is headed. In the first century, there were two rabbis in two schools of thoughts on this. And those of you who have studied this before probably know these. So this is, this is a reminder. Rabbi Hillel was the first one. His school of thought. And by the way, we have this today too. You go around the church, there's big arguments and you have sides of the arguments and there's usually a human being that's a proponent of each side. And then they bicker with each other for 20 years until some other topic comes up or they retire. And this was the thing there. was Rabbi Hillel versus Rabbi Shammai. And these two had thoughts and they wrote volumes and they argued with each other and there were followers of Hillel and followers of Shammai. And it generally came down to this. Rabbi Hillel read Deuteronomy 24.1. When a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some uncleanness in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. So he read that and then said, you can get divorced whenever you want whenever the man thinks the woman is unclean. Well, this then grew into this ridiculousness, right, as it happens with them. Men could concoct anything they wanted to and kick a woman out of their house and leave her on her own without support. There was no alimony payments. Basically making her homeless for any reason. It was horrible. They, they could cook a bad meal and the guy could come into the Rabbi Hillel and get a certificate for, of divorce confirmed they could be sassy and give a little bit of talk back to their husband, and that would be unclean. Well, she has an unclean attitude today. So anything became unclean. The defining word in Deuteronomy 24-1 is what does unclean mean? And if you take it out of context, it can mean anything. If you keep it in context, it's pretty clear, but we'll get to Rabbi Shemaiah in a little bit. So here's the other piece. In 1000 AD, the Jewish people actually changed Hillel's policy and said that the wife had to agree to the divorce too. So it took them a 1,000 years to get out of this belief system that was highly one-sided. So knowing that, I'm going to add one more element. This was very profitable for the Jewish rabbis. Because to get your certificate of divorce, you had to go into a rabbi, and they charged you a fee. In today's dollars, that fee was around 350 bucks. So they made a lot of money off of this. It's amazing how sin can make money for certain people. So they would make money. So it was called a get. You had to get a certificate of divorce. You'd go in and you say, I want to get on my wife. She cooked some bad lasagna. And you'd get a get from the rabbi, and you'd go home and serve it to your wife, put it in her hand, and say, get out of the house. It's horrible. And so this caused hurt within this community. But it was easy, and it was profitable. And it benefited the people that had the power in that society. Then you had Rabbi Shammai. I like this guy. He said, no, you can't do that. The law, what means unclean there is having sex with another person. Uh, This is PG-13, sorry about that. He he takes Malachi 2.14. This is the verse he reads. Lord has been witness between you and your wife from your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and the wife of the covenant. Not your covenant, the covenant. So Rabbi Shammai said that marriage is a covenant. And covenant breaking is not good in God's eyes. So you don't get to do, you don't get a get for whatever you want. You don't get to just pay yourself out of this. And you don't get to abandon women that you've taken responsibility for. And in the first century, that's a bigger deal than it is today. Even in the cases of an adultery, obliga- they were not obligated to get a divorce. They were permitted to get a divorce. Do you hear the difference? So even when a wife committed adultery, they weren't obligated to divorce her. But they could if they couldn't resolve that in some way. Verse 3, And he, Jesus, answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? Now the Hillel people are excited. Oh good, he's going to Deuteronomy. He's not going to Malachi. Right? So this gets them all excited. And then they reference it. Verse 4, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. They know the verse off the top of their head. That's how important this issue was to them. Not about if their souls are going to heaven, if they're saved or not, if they're in the word or not, if they're growing in the faith or not, if they're fellowshipping with us. None of that. Just, can you get a divorce or not? That's their litmus test. And then Jesus answered and said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. I love Jesus sometimes. Some of you love him when he's all soft and fluffy. I love him when he does this. From the beginning of creation... God made them male and female, verse 6. Verse 7, For this reason a man shall leave his mother and his father and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So when they're no longer two but one flesh, therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. The, The logical thread in so many few words is absolutely miraculous. Most people like me, I take an hour to make my point. This guy does it in three lines. And he does it geniusly. First of all, he doesn't make this about random, obscure people that want to get a divorce. He says he made this law because of you. He personalizes it, right? When you take hot-button issues and make it real to the individual, now we're on a different playing field. So he says he did this because of the... And first of all, telling Pharisees that are all high and mighty that they have hard hearts, they don't like to hear that. That's not friendly talk. And then I love that he does this. He returns to the Word of God on a hot-button issue. And by the way, divorce is a hot-button issue today, too. So will kids and so is money. So we're doing all of them today. From the beginning, he goes straight to the Word of God. He, teases, he lures them in with the fishhook of Deuteronomy 24, but then he takes them to Genesis. You know, so he's bouncing around the Word. He's looking for the full counsel of God, not a single verse. Let's see what the entire Bible says about this issue. And he makes the precept. I think a lot of religious conflicts can be resolved by simply understanding the word better. But if you're not going for the full counsel, you don't understand the full counsel and you can get lost in human debates and arguments. What a sad thing to not have the joy of the spirit but have the anxiety of debate and argument. So the law of first mention here is a treatment of the Bible that when the first time an issue is brought up, that's the premise God has set. And everything else is a qualification from first mention so Jesus uses first mention he goes all the way back to Genesis and he talks about it he also shifts from the topic of divorce notice this subtle shift he's not talking about divorce anymore that's a negative divorce is the bad situation he's talking about marriage which brothers and sisters that's a positive that's an outstanding part of life that God's given to us and he created it it's not ours it doesn't belong to us Well, that's an odd thing. For God wanted marriage for us because he has measured us out and he's made some of us for marriage and some of us for singleness. And we kind of know who we are as you're walking in the faith. And so he made us in a certain way where we actually become one flesh. So Jesus treats the current trends with God's timeless word. And we can do the same thing. In fact, this gives us a lot of guidance with all the issues today. Let's take every hot button issue that people get excited about on Twitter and throw it through the lens of the timeless word of God. And we can start to get wisdom when we do that and walk in God's ways when we do that. He says God made them male and female. Now we've been talking about male and female in this country. This is actually kind of a current thing for us. We don't know what it is anymore. So I I beg to differ that humanity is getting smarter. Like, we seem to be going the other direction. So Jesus says this. This would get him canceled at this point in our culture, this, this singular verse. Um, it seems to be intuitive, but God's made us different physically. I'm going to go two steps further. He's also made us different emotionally, and he's made us different spiritually. You can't just change body parts and change what God has made. It doesn't work that way. Just like a church isn't the building we need in. Church is the people. It's the heart. God made the men and women, it's, uh, and he made them, <laughs> so he uses the non-gender pronoun. In other words, he made them together. He conceived these, this idea of how these puzzle pieces would fit together, and he did it individually, and he said, for this reason. So this idea of that the core here isn't what divorce law is that they identify with. The key is that divorce is what God has made, and let's start with that point before we put human identity and human thinking on top of what God has made. God made men and women. He made them. He made them to be together. And for this reason, Jesus teaches what marriage is. He made them that way so that they could get married and they could live a life together and enjoy an intimacy of fellowship with another human being that had no walls. What a golden opportunity for humans, right? says, shall leave his father and mother. You think your relationship with your mom and dad is close? This is closer. Marriage is a bigger deal than that. You forsake your family to be part of a new family. It's how families get made. It's the core of all civic government as you go through the Bible. So I'm defining marriage because Jesus defines marriage. Instead of talking about the, where this gets screwed up, let's talk about what it is in the first place, what it's meant to do. It's meant to complete people. They're joined is the word. In the Greek, the word for joined there is to adhere one thing to another. Actually, it's the word you use for gluing something together. And I'm thinking like gorilla strong bond, right? It's, you also use the same word that they use for joined there for joining two oxen together under a single yoke. The yoke is God's word. And if you break out of that yoke in the middle of a field, things just don't, you're not plowing any more field. Everything gets messed up. Here's the thing with joining. There's an adhesion to that word or a power to that word that Jesus chose it on purpose. They have other words for get together, hang out, date, be buddies. This is joined. It's a different kind of word, and he emphasizes it, saying the two shall become one. In other words, they're joined in such a way that they don't come apart without major damage. And those of you in here that have been divorced, you know what I'm talking about. When you divorce, there's a ripping that happens. It's absolutely destructive to both of the formerly independent things that have been joined together. So divorce is damaging in that sense. There's an idea that this happens physically, the joining, but there's also an idea here that the joining is a spiritual thing that happens in marriage. It's not just the physical element. It's not the convenience of that. There, I brought it down to PG. This. And I think of this because I was just in the garage while I was working this week on this one, and I'm actually doing some adhesion and trying to use glue in the middle of winter. That's not easy. When you do it right and you glue two pieces of wood together, and then you make a mistake, which I do in the wood shop, and then you got to take those two apart after it's dried. I don't know if you've noticed this, but when you pull those woods apart, pieces of that piece will stick to this piece. And vice versa, parts of this piece will stick to that piece. So you rip those things apart, and they're never really apart. There's always a piece of them that will stick together. The result then is the chipped boards, dents, marring, damage. The damage to both pieces of wood is extreme. And I'm not just talking about wood anymore. Damage is horrible. And Jesus is making this point. You can repair it. You can take those pieces of wood, plane them down, saw off the other part of that other piece of wood. You can rework it, but you're going to shrink that board a little bit. There'll be some memory in that board. You can't fix the nail holes if you nailed it together. What God has joined, God loves marriage. He made it, it's his creation, it's his work, it's his heart, and it's his rule for life. So, then you get to verse 9. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. He doesn't make this about Halil and Shammai. They're just humans. And they don't have any business talking about what God has put together. It's not a debate. right? So instead of debating it or picking a side, Jesus kind of affirms them both in some ways. Shammai more than Hillel. There's an adherence to the word. And he notes that humans can have hearts and opinions about things, but God has his opinion too. And you can either mold yourself to God's opinion or you can't. What's God's desire for our life? That if we have a heart for marriage, we get married. That's his desire for our life. And then there's what we choose to do with our life. And they're not the same thing. So, God gave us Ten Commandments, right? If you carefully look through the Ten Commandments and you're honest with yourself, you've probably broken all ten of them. Does that mean you're going to go to hell? Absolutely not. Does that mean we should be judging each other over our past? Absolutely not. There's a mercy and a grace and a peace and a love God can fix that board miraculously in ways that my wood shop can't. Over time, He can heal. But that doesn't mean He approves of the thing that happened. It means that moving forward, there's grace for going some healing and some redemption and some peace. Praise the Lord, right? So when we get into these kinds of issues, we often think of our own experience and then we have an opinion based on our experience, not on God's standard and God's forgiveness. So to feel shame over it is to underestimate God's ability to forgive. To feel judgment over it is to overthink your ability to take authority in other people's lives. What God has joined together, let not man separate. An application thought before the disciples. The disciples can't quite process all this, and they're dealing with it in verse 10. Divorce is a spiritual amputation, and it's one of the worst things that can happen to a human being. There's damage and there's harm that comes from it. Here's another application. God does permit divorce. Let's not forget that. Deuteronomy 24.1 does give a condition for divorce. And he didn't do it because he likes it. He did it because there has to be some humanity in this process. There has to be some control over this process. So he legislates the process because he knows people are gonna screw up. They, in this, for the same reason he died on the cross. He knew we were gonna sin, so he provided us redemption and showed us a way to do it. In marriage, the focus is should be, how can we become one? But sometimes marriages, they start to fall apart and they start thinking, how can we become two? And that direction and that thinking can be hurtful. Then we get to the disciples because they're still like, wait a second, Shemai, oh, hello, which one do you are you back in here? Verse 10, in the house, so privately, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. Like, wait, where were you on this, Jesus? Like, you just said Genesis and God loves marriage, but you didn't answer the divorce question. So he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. It's a sin. God's not equivocating on this. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Same thing. Same thing, different gender. Like it goes two ways. He's not saying it's a male-only thing. He's saying like either one. It can happen. So Mark adds this additional consideration of divorce because there's lots of different situations, then and now, God hasn't dissolved the fowl of something he's created. So unless there's adultery, which is a breaking of the covenant, the ripping has already happened, then there is this idea that you've made a covenant for the rest of your life. So whoever divorces, there's no such thing as a one-way, right? Adultery releases the other spouse from the covenant because it's then broken, Deuteronomy 24.1. So if one of the two people cheats on the other person, that kind of covenant's busted. The person who didn't cheat is not obligated. They're not held under any shadow from God at all. They're completely free from that covenant if they so wish. They don't have to. There's no obligation to do that. But the committing of adultery is the line Jesus draws saying that the certificate is a civil issue. It's not a spiritual issue. And that there is God has bound you to something where you can be apart from each other but God still sees you as together because there's a spiritual connection. So adultery becomes the grounds for divorce. Well, but what if I don't like them anymore? Well, that's not adultery. What if I don't have fun with them anymore? We used to go bowling all the time, and now they don't like bowling. It's not a condition here. Sexual unfaithfulness is consistently the only biblical grounds for divorce. So what are not grounds for divorce? Irritation, bad cooking, you've lost that loving feeling, insults. And here's the thing that's even tough. Emotions, harshness are not grounds for divorce. And in the same way, when I commit my life to Jesus Christ, as I go through trials, I am, I've made a vow to Jesus Christ. It's not mine to break anymore. I've given my life to God. He can do what he wants with my life, even if it's tough. And so marriage becomes an image of the church's relationship with God and is used that way throughout the scriptures. So if two people can't be loving at home, it may be that singleness was their calling and they made a mistake. That's how we talk about it today, right? Well, practically... The idea of separation eliminates the cruelty of one person to another or whatever bad situation was there, um, and it, it solves that problem. And frankly, really practically, from a biblical perspective, if two people get separated but hold to their vows for the rest of their lives, they're not breeding. <laughs> like They're not making more kids that are going to suffer from bad people skills where those things are breaking down. So it creates an entire society where you don't have that happening. So this is a really tough situation, and I know there's different people that have read the Bible and read it different ways, and frankly, I hope we're all brothers and sisters in Christ and we can still love one another, even if we differ on this issue. I want to point out two additions, because Mark isn't the only one that wrote about it. Matthew points out that the law of Moses allows divorce in cases of adultery. Matthew 19.9, that's why I bring that up. So when one party is unfaithful, the other one's completely allowed to remarry and go do their thing. Here's the other thing. Separation over time will raise the likelihood of one of the two people to go commit adultery, won't it? So when that happens, then that other person's free to do it. They held their vow until the covenant was broken. So these are tough situations. Paul adds this in 1 Corinthians 7.15, and I think this is an important addition. If the unbeliever departs, let them depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Here's the thing. When you meet somebody that's gone through a divorce, years have gone by, and they're at this point now where they're trying to follow Jesus, they're trying to follow Jesus with all their heart. Satan will use the shame of past sin to keep them from following Jesus. We have to fight that as a community. There is, there is no shame and condemnation in Jesus Christ. And what Jesus would say to anyone that's in this situation, even adultery, would say, "Go and sin no more. Stop it. And if you're going to get remarried, then keep, then make that vow and keep it for the rest of your days. If you can't live with that other person anymore, separate, but keep your vow till the rest of your days, unless the other person breaks the vow." So, in the Old Testament, the Gospels confirmed by Paul, and what makes common sense in a spiritual life. You have a very good body of knowledge around this really tough issue. And then I love the fact that Paul adds to peace. The whole point is peace. Having peace with each other, having peace in relationships with each other. So in those kinds of situations, marriage is not just a civil matter. It's not a form to fill out, and that's the mistake the Pharisees were making. They think it's just a government issue. It's not. And Jesus claims that as part of a spiritual condition, and in the church we've seen it that way for 2,000 years. Right? And Jesus establishes that idea that marriage is more than a piece of paper. The Song of Solomon shows the love of two people that's beautiful. And when it's done right, it's glorious and it's a blessing to both parties. When it's done wrong, it's a trial where both parties will learn to seek God first. Isaiah 61.10 I will rejoice in the Lord and my soul shall be joyful in my God for he's clothed me with the garments of salvation he's covered me with the robe of righteousness as the bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Marriage is getting all dressed up for the wedding. And we do that for our God too. We try to get all dressed up. Matthew 25.10 And while they went to buy the bridegroom came and they, they were ready they went in with him to marriage and the door was shut. When Jesus comes and comes to the church, there will be a joining of the church and Jesus at his second coming that won't be separated because God will keep his end of the bargain. And we can guarantee, we'd be promised in that. The images of marriage as this beautiful thing is what Jesus returns us to understand. Satan wants us to focus on the negative and God wants us to focus on the positive for peace with one another. A couple other thoughts. And this is for the unmarried people in the room. Or the soon to be married people in the room. If we can understand how to give our lives to serve another human being, we can better understand how to give our lives to serve our God. If we can get rid of us so that we can bless them, we can do the same thing for God. And I think that's why they compare this whole relationship to marriage. We can understand how to serve the Lord. Mark eight fourteen nine thirty three verse 42 of this chapter. Marriage stands as a powerful image between Christ and his church. And Jesus wanted to sustain that image while dismissing the debates. It's a binding promise. It's not for us to break. Jesus often abstracts these moral issues to the spirit of the law. In this one, he gets practical too. In verse 2, he's saying, is it lawful for a man? That's not the right question. It's not if it's lawful or not. It's if it's right or not. What do you want to be doing? So you're either bound to a covenant or you're not, and there's two categories to that. The best possible situation is that people honor each other for the rest of their lives. The two people become one spirit and they're a blessing to one another even in the toughest of times. God can use that marriage. An okay situation is that marriage is honored. You honor what God has made even if there isn't a great loving relationship there anymore. You tolerate each other. And you do it in such a way that's passable until the end of your days. And there's no shame in that. And then you get, and my wife has to tolerate me on a fairly regular basis. So maybe there's a mix of the two there somewhere. And then the the last situation, and I think this is for peace too, is when there is a divorce. That's tragic, and God has mercy. Does that make sense? It's both tragic. You've ripped two things apart, but God's the carpenter. He knows how to handle that. He knows how to deal with it. You're never obligated to get a divorce, but you're permitted to get one in the cases of adultery. Adultery, by the way, by Jesus' definition, is pretty broad, right? Where are your eyes? Where is your heart? And so those situations become very things that people again want to get into. But as a general principle, our aim should be to support each other in the marriages that are in this room, to bless one another in that sense. And we see young people getting married; we hold them account to that vow. You know, just because things get tough, we're we're there to support both both people in that marriage as much as we can. So as a church, we have strong marriages. I think that's what Jesus would want. Now let's talk about child rearing. So this is practical too, right? Now we'll get into kids. Roman attitude towards kids. They were worthless. They were sellable. You could take your kid, and if you didn't want them, you could just sell them to somebody else. They were little slaves in the household. They were worthless. And Romans saw them as that. They couldn't carry a sword. They weren't worth much. So the human value that was ascribed by Romans was not the same value that God ascribes to humans. And so this is, think of this from a Roman perspective. Verse 13, Then they brought little children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them, But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me, and don't forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. I'm going to argue this is virtually the same argument as the marriage argument. Only this time it's his disciples making the mistake. So it's not just Romans. It's not just Pharisees. It's his own disciples. It says they brought him, verse 13. The word brought there is prosper, prospero in the Greek. It means to bring somebody for dedication or blessing. They're asking Rabbi Jesus to bless their children. And as followers, they're, they're pushing him away. He, he's not on duty right now. Um, maybe they weren't paying because sometimes with the rabbis, you had to pay them for these services. And Jesus just says, let the little, little children come. So this idea that Jesus elevates the importance of children as in three parts. First, he elevates them to the status of human being. That was not Roman thinking. Then he elevates them as somebody who could be ministered to by an adult. right? The adult would minister to kids. And then, frankly, I think he elevates them to the place of loved as he takes them in and blesses them. So kids are both human both worthy of ministry and worthy of the love of the people around them. In other words, and if, again, if you look at the spirit of what God wanted for parenting, he wanted little kids to grow up in loving homes, period. Again, this is another issue that we have in today's culture. As cultures walk away from God, things like marriage, child rearing, and finances go awry across the board. In fact, I think sometimes it's those things under the water that start to go awry before the culture does. And you could argue those things have been going around from us for, for a long time. I like how David Gusick says this. He says, and I quote, Because children love to come to Jesus, we should never block the way or fail to provide them away. We know more about Jesus than the woman of Judea did. Is there any good reason for us to not bring our own children to Jesus? There's a weird thought in the Christian community, broader Christian community of, well, I'm going to let my kids choose their own path. Really? You're going to let a five-year-old do that? Is that parenting? Is that showing them the way to Jesus and the path to Jesus? It's an odd thought, but I think the enemy loves that thought. Oh yeah, let your kids go through all five religions before they find Jesus. It's ridiculous. There's one path to God. Teach that to them. If I asked you for directions to the grocery store, would you send me off to some other place? Maybe some of you would. Most of you would say the grocery store is over there. When a kid says, "What happens when I die?" you say, "The path to heaven's right over here." Want me to show it to you? So churches, <laughs> because Jesus teaches this. Again, we can just read. Peace. We can sing the little song. Jesus loved the little children, but because Jesus taught this for the last two thousand years, children have been regarded as valuable. Imagine that. This carpenter starts teaching about kids and it's changed cultures all over the world. Because he taught this, we have children's ministry where I think some of the most important teaching happens in the church. It happens back in that room where little kids are hearing about Jesus. right? They don't have all of our baggage, so they're just like, I accept it all. Right? We should be more like that. We should be more like those kids. This is why churches have youth events. This is why we have discipleship programs. This is why we do all these things so that in the years it takes for them to grow up, they turn 14, 15, they're thinking like an adult. They're not turning 25 and still thinking like a 10-year-old. And it goes that way. You bring kids to Jesus so they can grow up. If If kids choose to live in sin, let it never be because we didn't tell them how to not live that way. Let it never be out of their ignorance. Let them know exactly what they're sinning against. And then they do have to make their own choices. They do have to pick their path. But as children, we show them the way that they should go so that they can follow in it. Such is the kingdom of God. This is how the kingdom of God works. It's interesting that he compares entrance to the kingdom as being like a child. Child doesn't have any assumptions about what they deserve. They're just happy to be hugged. They're happy that they can sit in your lap and enjoy the presence and the, the hugs that they get. You walk in the door and they know you and they're like, yay and they see you and they run at you and you think wow that's kind of beautiful i should be more like that no assumptions no presumptions i know that the gift from god is a gift and i receive it like a gift i don't think i have to do something what time did you ever see a kid like under five get their christmas presents and then say okay what do i owe you (laughs) like what yeah these are really nice christmas presents but i should do something to earn those christmas presents no kids are like thanks for the gift and they run off and go play with it you know, and, I, and I think when God offers us the gift of salvation, we should be very similar to that. Thanks for the gift. But there's no sense of work or obligation or presumption. There's no assumed responsibility. Sadly, you kind of got to train that as they get older. Jesus took them in his arms. When it says that he took them up, he assumed responsibility for them. The Greek for take, to, he took and in his arms, it's the same word for taking on responsibility. Jesus took the spiritual responsibility as somebody else's kid and he blessed them. That's what we do in children's ministry every Sunday, most Sundays, because Paul's out here right now. He laid his hands on them. The use of that, Numbers twenty seven twenty three is to commission somebody or in Mark 6, 5, to heal somebody. When we lay hands in the Bible, it's to send somebody out with the full blessing of the community, or it's to actually heal them. So when Jesus lays hands on these children, he's not just patting them on the head. There's a a significance to those phrases. And then the third thing is it says he blessed them. Eulogio, it's where we get the word eulogy. He praises, invokes, consecrates, or prays for them. It's in the future imperfect. (laughs) <laughs> the only other use of this word is when he blessed the meal and the feeding of the thousands. Same word. So when he's treating these kids in such a way that they're going to multiply. Think about this. When a kid comes to the kingdom, they actually have a whole life ahead of them to give to the Lord. There's a multiplication factor there. Look, practically, if an old man like me gets saved and starts to serve the Lord, I got less to give the Lord. I got less years ahead of me. So these kids, that that idea of eulogy, bless them. They will multiply. And the the ministry they can have is huge. Kids get this amazing gift of time that they can give to the kingdom of God. The world says marriage is convenient and children are inconvenient. They're both selfish ways to think about both of those things. God says that marriage can be inconvenient, but it's precious. And children are precious, but they can be inconvenient. Totally flipping on the head, Roman society. I think totally flipping on the head, United States society in 2023. Totally flips how we think about those things. Where the world undervalues both marriage and parenting, God overvalues those things. Where the world undervalues both marriage and parenting, we get to the next passage, they overvalue money. And so the next passage is about money, and this is something the Romans held very dear to their hearts. Forget about obligations and vows. They can be broken. Forget about responsibilities and children. They don't, they'll grow up somehow or another on the street. But money, getting as much as you can, as fast as you can, man, that's what you live for. In the Roman society, the more money you had, the more slaves you could hire, the more you could get other people to do things for you. That was Roman society. It doesn't sound too different. Verse 17, Now as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I might inherit eternal life? First of all, that's the wrong question. It's not what do you do to get eternal life. It's what gift do you receive. It's already been offered. You don't have to do anything. So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? I love this. Because you're Jesus? No, he didn't say, but he doesn't. He's asking this to pull something out of him. Right? Why do you call me good? No one's good but one, and that's God. So Jesus is kind of like, you calling me good because you know that I'm God? Or are you calling me good because you're just being sloppy with the word? So he's trying to get intention out of him. Verse 19, You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. You know what God's told you to do. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. I'm not a sinner. I'm perfect. And Jesus looked at him, loved him, said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and then come take up the cross and follow me. And he was sad at this word and he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Folks, I'm going to suggest that everybody in this room is wearing clothes that cost far more than they cost in the first century. You're sitting in chairs that didn't even, that polyurethane foam didn't exist in the first century. You're in an air-conditioned building. We'd all be in like parkas and blankets with a fire in each of the aisles here trying to stay warm in the first century. In fact, I don't know if people even bothered to live in Minnesota back because it was too dang cold. <laughs> this is another thick, tough passage, you guys. And I'm sorry you got to have a guest preacher go through this with you. It was just the next chapter for my Bible study, so that's what it is. I didn't pick this because I was trying to target tough topics. He uses the phrase good teacher We should note right away that that phrase was overtly never used. It was like every culture has words that we just don't use, right? Inappropriate. And in Jewish culture, good teacher was never used. It was a Talmud tradition. You never use the phrase good teacher because and in the Talmud it says there's only one that's good and that's God. So we could say good Anya. We could say, oh, that was a good thing you did, but you'd never say good teacher. You'd never define the human as good because in Jewish belief, everyone is a sinner. Everyone needs to give sacrifice at the temple. Everyone has things they have to get amended for. They even have a sacrifice for sins that you didn't know you committed. You're just too ignorant to know you committed them. He says, why do you call me good? He's questioning this belief system. Like Jesus is saying, do you know what you're saying right now? Do you understand it? Maybe the Holy Spirit just had that come out of this guy's mouth. Like it's another way where he's declaring it, and it's not Jesus' time yet, right? So no one is good but one, that is God. Jesus iterates the common understanding, supporting the Talmud in this. Like we should be careful when we use that phrase, good. He's not challenging. He's not pointing out blasphemy. He never corrects this guy. So the guy says good teacher, he's not reproved for it. In the Talmud, if someone says good teacher, they should be rebuked sternly and told to never do it again. Jesus never rebukes him, accepting the title. So he says, what shall I do? Romans earned the favor with the gods by doing things. Every other religion on the planet, even Judaism, has you earn favor with God by doing things. And it generally costs you money. Christianity is the only one where you don't have to earn favor with God. You already have it. The only thing you can do is choose to not accept the gift that's already been given to you. We don't receive it. We, ex- we we don't do something for it. We simply accept it. You know, it's Christmas. We got some presents mailed to our house, and they show up in the mail, and they're in the package, and Steph just puts them on the table, and then she says, "You got to wait for everybody to get home before to open it." So I shake it and I listen to it, but I haven't accepted it yet. Haven't opened it. It's mine. It's been given in the past tense. It's there, ready to be received. But I don't, I have to wait because I'm told to wait. So I just sit and look at it from across the room and I stare at it. I imagine what it could possibly be. Jesus clearly outlines this in the, in the way it was defined. This idea that you come up to somebody like Jesus and you ask these things and you claim that you haven't sinned. You're at a place where you can't get follow. You can't follow Jesus if you claim that. You really have the present on your table, but you're not opening the present. You're just staring at it. And that's where Jesus is trying to connect with this guy. I love that it says he looked at him, he loved him, and he said, and Mark adding that in, this wasn't a spirit of just rejection by God, it was the spirit of love. I love you, I care about you, and I want you to get this. But that thought that i got to do something, even when you're excited, even if you know what the gift is, somebody gave you a phone call and said, this is what's in the package, and you shake it, and you're like, yep, that's what's in it. Even if you understand salvation, but you don't follow Jesus with your life, you haven't opened the gift. So what does that look like? How does this work? So how does this man adjust his thinking? So Jesus looks at him and sees that this man... Um, worships his money, his status, and his skills. This is a passage that gets taken out of context, and it does get taken out of context. Well, money is bad. We should give everything up and give it to the poor. Jesus looks at him before he says this. He looks at that individual and knows who he is and what the stumbling block is between him and accepting Jesus Christ. And that stumbling block is understanding you don't buy the gift. You have to take it as a gift. So the problem here is that he's there. He's also a really successful guy. He sees that. This guy's done really well for himself in this world. He loves him, number two, before he says anything to him, he loves who he is. He doesn't just throw an accusation to somebody he barely knows, an acquaintance across the room. He actually understands him, sees him, loves him, and then he says something and Jesus gives the best thing he can. He gives the word of God. All he says to him is the Ten Commandments. And when Frankly, we have the word of God in front of us too. So if we know that Jesus loves us, Jesus is watching us, And we have the word of God to hear from Jesus? That's a pretty good start. Same start that this guy had. Jesus doesn't challenge him. When somebody says, I'm perfect and I haven't sinned, isn't it your tendency to say, oh, yes, you are. You got issues. Let me tell you everyone. I think to be more like Jesus, Jesus doesn't do that. He never tells this guy what his sin is. He tells him what a path forward is. You want to earn it? Okay, let's run with your theology. If you want to earn salvation, give up everything you own. This is a preposterous thing that he's telling him. If you want to earn it, then give up everything you own. But I think Jesus already knew this guy couldn't do that. The path he's trying to get into heaven is an impossible path. And this is where it goes with the disciples. So go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor. Three things there. Easily out of context. But Jesus saw him, loved him, knew what he needed to do. There were many new followers to Jesus that have to give up their self or their idols in order to run towards Jesus. We're all running towards something. You woke up this morning, you're running to church. When you wake up tomorrow morning, what are you running towards? Like some people say, if I look at your calendar and your pocketbook, I know what you're running towards. It's pretty easy to see those things. It's, it's transparent. Everybody runs to something. But if you're not running to Jesus, you have to give up that other thing that you're running towards. It's, maybe it's not money. Maybe it's something totally different. But Jesus knew that this guy had to get rid of that in order to run towards him because he was too busy worrying about his possessions. God doesn't have issues with wealth. I want to point that out to help us not get off track on this. We got Solomon. He was wealthy. We got David. God blessed him with wealth and prosperity. We got the blessing of promises that are throughout the Old Testament. We have followers that were were also there. Um, It is not unreasonable for people that are in sin to give up their sin to follow Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't asking him to do anything. He's asking him to stop following his possessions. Luke 5:29. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house and there was a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with him. Matthew was rich enough to host a party where everybody could come. I don't know what. Like when you're tight on the pocketbook, you don't invite everybody over to your house. Matthew did. It, it, I think sometimes we, we transpose that or blow it out to be something else, but Matthew had a lot of resources, and we don't see Jesus dealing with Matthew on that. Jesus just said, follow me, and Matthew said, sure. He didn't live for the money. It wasn't his pursuit on Monday morning. He followed Jesus on Monday morning. So many don't give up their possessions and have good standing with Jesus all through the Scripture. This guy's unique. I just want to point that out. It says you'll have treasure in heaven. Jesus doesn't ask him to give something up without a return on that investment. You give that up, you're going to get treasures in heaven. If you have sin in your life that's getting between you and Jesus, give it up. There are rewards on the other side of that. Some people think, oh, I don't want to give that up because I love it so much. right? Or they're like Gollum and they're just clinging the ring. My precious. It's not that precious. It's a stupid ring. Throw it in Mount Doom and get rid of it. And there's reward in that. And the reward is you can walk away from Mount Doom. Right, so come, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus asks him the exact same thing he's asked everybody else in his ministry by Paula and Alex. Um, he, asks, he says, take up your cross and follow me. In the book of Mark, he's told the disciples now a couple times, I'm going to the cross, you guys. Like, this is going to be persecution. It's not going to be easy. And, the follow, and they're still staying with him because they don't quite understand what he's saying. But he said you've got to die to yourself in 834, if you want to flip through your mark a little bit. He said you need to be the least, not the best, 9.33. He said you have to serve everybody, 9.42. What Jesus is asking the rich man is no different than what he's asked everybody else at the end of the day, follow me. But he said he was sad at his word. He went away sorrowful. Not everybody chooses to follow Jesus. And, I, and remember, the disciples are watching all this happen, right? So they're seeing this guy just walk away. And they're like, how are you walking away from Jesus, the Messiah? But he does. And I think sometimes that's aggravating for us when we have loved ones that are walking away from Jesus and we're like, how do you possibly walk away from the joy and peace? So he went away sorrowfully, pursued worldly things and left one lacking joy. And Jesus uses this as another lesson and he clarifies himself with his disciples just like he did with the divorce thing. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? And his disciples were astonished at his words. Astonished! And Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? He repeats himself. Says the exact same thing. How hard is it? It's, it's, notice there's an exclamation point at the end of 23 and 24. They're rhetorical questions. Man, how hard is it for people to give up? You know, it's it's almost like Jesus is just like astounded by this. How can people walk away from the riches of heaven? The glory of fellowship, the ministry of the saints, abiding in the Word of God. The fact that we can pray for things and they get answered, have you ever thought how powerful a gift that is? The fact that we can sing a song together in a room and have our hearts blessed, how could people walk away from that? The peace, the love, the joy, what do they possibly want that's better than that? And so Jesus asks it in such a way of like, wow, and he says it twice. The disciples are astonished in between, like, yeah, we don't get why this guy just walked away. They don't get it. The disciples can be astonished. We can be astonished too. When things, if we assume riches are always an unmitigated blessing for the people that get them and not sometimes a trap, we can be stunned by that thought. Romans would be stunned by this thought. How can riches not be a sign of God's blessing? How can that possibly be the case? But when riches become our God, they aren't food for our soul anymore. They're actually bad for our soul because we serve the money over the God that gave us that money. So we get satisfied, but we're empty on the inside. And This is the story of a lot of very rich, prosperous people by worldly standards. They've done and made everything, but there's still something missing. Yet I wake up, there's not a lot missing. The Lord has provided. He is good. He is faithful and just to forgive. And I need that forgiveness. Thank you, Lord. We should pay special attention here. I'm going to kind of end on these 25, 26, and 27. Do we trust our money more than we trust Jesus? Again, some of you I don't know so well, so it's a hard admonishment question to give, but accept it from the guy in the pulpit this morning. Do you trust your money more than you trust your Jesus? got a lot of people that have to ask, where are your treasures kept? Where are the things that you're proud of? Are they on this earth or in the, are they in heavenly places? God t- if God took away everything you had, would you still love God? Even if you were Job and destitute, would you still love him for who he is, for what he's done? If the wealth took away all of your fellowship with God, would you still love the money (coughs) if that was possible? You have to ask yourself who you serve and who your God is. And I think as believers we need to be doing that on a regular basis. Who do I love more than God today? It's a constant act of growth in the kingdom of God. Then Jesus says this one, great image that's confounded us for 2,000 years. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I want to talk about what he's saying and what he's not saying here. So we can sort this and understand it. We often hear this and we think of sewing needles because of our language. Uh, But that's not what this is. A needle was a gate into the city that was the little door. There's the big door that you throw open for when armies come in and out of your city there's battle time you shut that door and what you have is off to the side a little door called a needle and the needle was built so that people couldn't just come walking through all the time so it would be an L-shaped thing you'd walk into it it would go this way and then that would go out into the city area camels hate these things and if you go to the Middle East and you ever get a chance to see this you see it They had to get camels in and out of that needle because that's how they would do trade during times of threat. They're not going to take that big bar off the big gate. That's a job, takes a lot of people. The little gate, you turn a key, open it up and do it. So merchants and traders would come into town and camels would go through there all the time. But there's a few conditions for a camel to get through an eye of a needle because they animals don't naturally go into places where they can't see the other side. And they don't naturally go into places where they got to make a corner. And camels are just ornery in general. And they spit. So for a camel to go through the eye of the needle, it had to, one, be led by its master. There had to be some tether or rain where it knew its master. Two, it had to be unloaded. If it was loaded up with riches, it wouldn't fit through the door. The riches had to come through with porters just moving the bags. It's like when you go into a hotel. You can't drive your car into the lobby. You have to get out of your car, Take your bags out of your car and walk them through the door. Same kinds of things. And then three, it was still a pain in the butt to get a camel through the eye of a needle. All three of those things. It would, but this was commonplace in the first century. All of them would have seen that behavior at the gate. They would have been hearing, it would be the, just the sound in the background. There's children playing, there's merchants trading, and there's camels making noises as merchants are trying to get them through the eye of the needle. They're loud and annoying and they spit. So it's the largest animal. It carried the biggest loads and getting it through the smallest door, Jesus is creating a joke here. This is an example that they'd be familiar with. It's not impossible, and we say, well, verse 25, it's impossible for rich people to get to heaven. No, it's not. It happens all the time. It's hard. They have to be led. they got to unburden themselves, which is exactly what Jesus just asked this guy to do. And they have to and it's still tough. <laughs> camels; these the, they have to be trained. They have to be blessed. You know, I think there's the other thing too: is camels often wouldn't be led through a needle with somebody they didn't know. They had to, they had to trust their master that they would go through that eye of the needle. This is true if you train horses, dogs, any kind of beast, right? If they don't know you, they don't trust you. They're not moving for you. And I think that's the same case with people that put their trust in wealth and riches. If they don't see the fruit in your life, they don't know you. They're not interested in what you have to say. They're they're feeling pretty successful. But as they get to know people and they see something different about you, that your heart is fulfilled and theirs is empty, they'll say, how did you get there? And they're willing to be led, even if they got to unload some things to get there. It's not impossible. It's just work and it takes time. Wouldn't you love it in ministry if we could just tell people to follow Jesus and they would? You know, but sometimes there's relationships that have to be built. So Jesus is differentiating that different people have different challenges to get into the kingdom of God. Amen? It's really easy. Verse 26 and 7, and that's what we'll end on. And they were greatly astonished. First they were astonished, now they're just greatly astonished, saying amongst themselves, Who then can be saved? Like they're just like, Wow. But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it's impossible, but not with God, for God all things are possible. Again, this chapter is just loaded with stuff that gets taken out of context. You ever, like, people go, well, with God, all things are possible. And it's like, are you talking about rich people getting into heaven? Because that's what Jesus was talking about here. Or are you just talking about, like, you know, you, you want a new air conditioner and it just showed up at your door, and with God, all things are possible. And it's a great phrase to say. I don't want to beat up the phrase. But let's be careful when we use words. and Be thoughtful about how it was used originally and how we're going to apply that. So again, this is not an anti-money teaching. It's a reliance on God teaching. Nobody can get into heaven on their own merit. So when he says with men it's impossible, that's true. He's taught that his whole ministry. But he's also taught that with God, anybody can get into the kingdom. That's also true. But to think that you do it on your own merit, which is what this rich guy thought, is a faulty line of thinking. You can't do anything to earn salvation. You simply have to say, I accept and then choose to make Jesus your Lord and Savior and follow him. So who can be saved? Good question. This is the best question the disciples have asked in the book of Mark so far. Who can be saved? And they all think that you can't give up everything in your life. That's totally impractical. Like, I, What am I supposed to give up? All my clothing and where I live? And I am just go you know, live under a bridge somewhere? And, and no... Again, Matthew followed Jesus. Zacchaeus followed Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, gave up his tomb for Jesus. Barnabas followed Jesus. Paul was a tent maker, but before that he was a a Pharisee. He was a wealthy guy, followed Jesus. Lydia followed Jesus. Lots of people follow Jesus and they don't go and live under bridges. All of them had to take their wealth and put it subservient to the kingdom of God. My wealth serves the king. Whatever God's blessed me with serves the king. If I can be a blessing to other people and be generous and live generously, I'm going to serve the King with that money. But you have to do that. You're mentally giving that stuff up. It doesn't matter if you have it anymore. With God, all things are possible. No human being rationally wants to give anything up. We are like Romans. We hoard everything, and that's natural. That's true. Let's just admit that. We we work so that we can buy things that we like. And God, says, God doesn't bemoan that. He bemoans that we should be working to build the kingdom of God with our lives to the perhaps detriment of our pocketbooks. But our heart goes to the kingdom of God, first and foremost. So no one's f- so far from God's grace that they can't turn right now and say, Lord, here's my bit. I promise I won't spit too much. Take me through to eternity. Get me through the other side. And the Lord says, sure. Do you trust me? yeah, I'm going to trust you, Lord, then I've already prepared the way. There's a door in the wall right there. And let me tell you what, when I come back the second time, that door's going to get shut. You won't get in. So come in now, camel, or you're not a very good camel. (laughs) Like, you're not going to get in. So there's a limit to it. God can direct humans. He can direct animals, by the way. God could independently help the camel get through it. He had a donkey speak. He had bears and mall people. Um, he had lions not mall people god can work through animals and he can lead us too it's not that hard he can turn our hearts towards him so if god can direct a camel to get through a needle anytime any anyway without their master he can direct us too we're not as stubborn as a camel or you don't know camels very well he can do it let me end on this thought and again i respect the fact that Sometimes you got to go to people you trust for this. But I don't know all of you. I used to come here and I knew all of you. Now there's new people and stuff. So I'm going to say this. If you're struggling in life right now and you want to choose a better way to follow Jesus, let's do that today. right? It doesn't have to be me, but I'm going to hang out up here after we're done today. You can come hang out with me. We'll have a song. Are we wrapping up with a song or no? Cindy's saying no. So we'll not. I'm just going to sing to myself in my head. If there's, there's a part of you, as we're talking about weird topics like marriage and kids and, and money and stuff, and you're thinking, you know what? I don't follow the Lord. If I'm honest with myself, I follow me. If, God's, if you're thinking that, that's the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart, questioning what you were made to be, which was selfish. It's a good thing. What's stopping you from changing your life right now and choosing to follow the King today? How much, like, this could be the day don't leave this room without praying with somebody and grabbing somebody and saying, I want to follow the Lord today. And if you trust me to do that prayer with I'm happy to sit down and do that prayer with you. Don't leave here sorrowful like this rich man did. Don't do that. The tragedy here is that the guy walked out the door. Probably walked through the camel's needle thing. and That would have been really funny, wouldn't it? Because Jesus is like, it's harder for a rich man to get through night night, and the guy's like stuck in the door, kind of chubby. With God, you can simply let go, you can pray for it, you can ask for it, and you can open the present on the table. With God, that broken piece of wood can be healed. God can purify a cross, he can purify your heart. And he can do it soon. Open the gift today. And I'm just going to pray, you can pray with me if you want, but don't leave here without talking to somebody. That's the first step in fellowship, being part of a body but let's just say a word of prayer and we'll wrap up for the day. Dear Lord and King, Lord, I don't call you Lord lightly and I don't call you King lightly. and I don't call you good lightly, but you're all three of us. Lord, I've screwed up. I've messed up. I've read the Ten Commandments and I'm pretty sure I've broken all of them at some point or another in my heart. Lord, I'm not perfect and I'm broken. But to whatever degree I can unload that baggage, Lord, help me get through the island. help me to eternal life. Show me the way. Change my heart. And Lord, I give you permission to be the king of my life. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, You can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.